Blue collar people are some of the grittiest, toughest, bravest human beings on the planet. Every building, bridge, and road was built on the backs of their hard work. Every piece of raw material was mined by their calloused hands. They manufacture our goods and transport them around the world. We see that strong outer shell, but there's more to every person than meets the eye. In this podcast, blue-collar business leaders tell their stories of courage and victory over crushing defeats. That's only possible because of a mental and emotional fortitude and a willingness to ask for help. It's our mission to bring hope to those of us who are strong on the outside, but may be living a life of quiet desperation on the inside. We'll do that by working together to tell the truth about the challenges we face and what it really takes to break through them. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Tragedy to Triumph podcast. I'm here with our next guest, Jason Schreiber. He's a super good friend of mine and the owner of the gym that I am a member of. Actually, my wife and I both are members of, of Jason's gym. It's Top Tier Columbia, Top Tier Fitness in Columbia. Uh, he's an amazing guy, amazing entrepreneur, business owner, and um, he is here to share with us a pretty amazing story here today. So, how you doing, Jason? Thanks for being on. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Good, good. Welcome. Uh, so uh, we're going to get started like we always do here on this podcast. Why don't you just share a little bit of your background with us? What would you like the audience to know about you personally, professionally, uh, by way of background? Um, okay, so uh, I came, came up in a sort of a traditional um, Christian family. Um, and, uh, grew up on a farm and my parents definitely taught me to have strong work ethic and they valued school and, um, getting good grades and being responsible. Um, I had a lot of freedom during my childhood, uh, so long as I followed the rules and maintained, you know, the status quo, of, you know, the responsibilities allotted to me, like, um, like, a, like I mentioned, you know, the school uh, and working hard on the farm. And, uh, you know, got to college, kind of went the other direction, um, kind of like a lot of goofing off and, you know, freedom without any oversight. And um, went through a very interesting transition through the years in college where um, I kind of felt very lost. You know, most of my life before that was sort of following the direction that everyone else wanted me to do. Um, I didn't really have a sense of identity. Back then, I just more or less was a people pleaser. But it cost me a lot emotionally um, to live that way. And so once I was on my own, I kind of spiraled out of control, frankly. Um, eventually became a drug addict, hit, I'd say, several rock bottoms, and uh, finally landed on uh, my passion, which is service, um, helping other people. And I chose the realm of health and fitness uh, to do so. And so I um, was lucky enough to find some mentors, one in particular who kind of groomed me to the professional that I largely am today. 
which led into me unexpectedly becoming a business owner, not something I had planned ever in my life. And um, I'm really happy that I did. And I'm also very thankful of all the challenges and obstacles I've gone through through my entire life to get here. Um, because I do feel that a great deal of my character and what I have to offer the world was essentially earned, you know, trial by fire. Um, and I would not be anywhere near as um, sincere and helpful to people without that struggle. Yeah, man. Well, that that's definitely several things about what you just said, your, your work ethic and... Um... Uh, your ability to overcome challenges uh, is there's some of the things that I admire the most about you. So I'm glad that they came up here. So just to, just to kind of like help formulate the story here, let's back up a little bit. So uh, this has been something that I've been curious about for, for a while. What kind of farm did you actually live on? What did, what did you all grow or produce? So it was, a, it was largely like a joint farm. So they're actually two families, uh, mine and um, we'll call them, you know, family friends who were next door. And so the, the, the land my parents owned uh, was uh, not, was farming for us, right? So we didn't sell anything. We just lived off the land. Um, and the only thing we didn't have are like animals to slaughter. So, I mean, you can imagine, you know, we had acres of, of um, crops that we would grow every, every year. Um, a lot of corn, you know, tomatoes, broccoli, peppers. I mean, just go down the list of every imaginable <laughs> vegetable you can come up with. Uh, we had like a, uh, probably like a, I'd say maybe like a half acre of fruit trees. Um, and and berry bushes too, and and then there's a lot of open land, uh, sort of in between it. There also um, we grew locust trees, um, which were meant to be grown uh, and and harvested later, um, like ten years after the fact for firewood. So we we um, we used our own um, wood stove uh, to heat the house, for example, and so things like chopping wood became part of like you know our job um as winter was a com was coming around during the summer it was and the spring and summer spring was planting the crops and sort of preparing the land for it then you had all the harvesting of the crops during the summertime um fall usually moved into you know the corn and the um you know the wood chopping stuff for the winter time Winter was a reprieve for the most part on the farm, although uh, at where we lived did get a lot of um, uh, precipitation and we lived on the top of essentially a mountain um, right at the edge of a, of a state park. So um, every winter or most winters, I should say, there was a lot of uh, plowing of, of um, you know, roads. So, I mean, like we would, there are all these different families that lived in this little area and the state, well, probably more like the county, I guess, but wasn't really into coming into our area to plow us out. So essentially like families would have to get together with big tractors and 
you know, large groups of people and essentially shovel, shovel ourselves and plow ourselves out of, um, out of the state park, um, you know, and then the next door neighbor that was adjacent to us, what they, um, did was board horses. And so, um, I have a sister. And so my, my parents, uh, basically had my sister and I become workers for that farm too, because that's like a year round job. Right. So that, and we would get paid for it. You know, it was, it wasn't just work for nothing. Um, and so there was a lot of care of the horses. Some of them were owned by the neighbor. Some of them were owned by other people who were paying money to board the horses. Um, you know, so that's where I also learned how to ride horses and, and, you know, basic veterinary care and just, you know, all the things that, you know, deal with making sure a horse is healthy and safe, um, the feeding, the cleaning, the riding, the walking, the, I mean, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, so between the two families, they basically co-opted together and nobody, like I said, nobody sold anything. Um, it was just basically two families who lived in the country who just, I guess, made an agreement at some point in the past that, you know what, we're gonna try and live off the land together as best we can and, you know, save up as much money as possible and, you know, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, there you go. All right. So you, so you grow up on this farm and you're, you know, you're, you're helping work the land. I'm, I'm sure that was part of the, part of the deal growing up in a, in a, yep. you know, a, a, a farmer's family, right. And your, your parents valued education and it seems like that value was passed on to you as well. So then you, you said something earlier about never intending to become a business owner. And I, I don't, you don't need to get into all of the story about becoming a business owner just yet. But what I'm curious about is like, what did you actually start studying? And then how did you, when you, when you went off after high school into college, and then what was that transition like into starting to learn about what you're doing today? Oh yeah. So that, <laughs> that was actually a, a scary time in my life too. And so I went to university of Maryland um, and uh, I went there as a double major. So I was, uh, I was a double major in biochemistry and microbiology. And I stayed that way with my, you know, declaring those, that double major, um, until my senior year, actually. And, you know, the short story really is that the, that the process, the four years of me being in college, um, allowed me to, you know, no one was watching me, right? I was responsible for myself. And so I entered college as a very, very scared, insecure, shy person, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I was very happy to one day graduate college, go work into work in a lab. So my intention was actually to work uh, for the CDC. That was my dream job. And I wanted to do viral research for the purposes of eventually finding a cure for cancer oh. or treatment for cancer, using them as a delivery tool for um, killing tumor cells and stuff. Um, you know, by the senior year, my personality had changed so much that I honestly had a panic attack, like a legit panic attack um, of the, from the idea of, of being in a lab um, more or less by myself. I mean, Technically, there'd be other people there, but not many. It's a pretty isolated job. Sure. So I'm freaking out. 
figuring what the heck can I do? My parents are, um, they're paying for most of my schooling. So there's like a huge guilt I have with the idea of calling my parents up and being like, hey, so it's been four years and turns out, you know, I don't want to do what I thought I wanted to do anymore. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm scheming in my head. Like what, how can I sell this idea? Cause I, like I knew I couldn't do what I intended to do, but I have to sell it, you know? And so the other part of my life that I had grown very interested in during college was the world of fitness and, and health. And the kinesiology program at Maryland was a very, um, was a very, it was a pre-med program. So basically the majority of my classes, if I transferred from the one you know group of science majors to kinesiology, would largely transfer. And so if I did a good job in like a fifth year, I could essentially graduate with only one more year of college. And my argument was, well, at least I didn't waste four years, you know, mom and dad. <laughs> Um, and so that's what I did. And I, yeah, I didn't know what was going to come of it, but I liked being around the athletes. I liked being, I liked helping people with, you know, getting, you know, moving and, and fitness. So I said, screw it. I'm, so I'm going to try to do, uh, and really truly had no plan past yeah. that. It was just, how do I not get my, how do I, how do I sell this idea so my parents don't kill me? basically. <laughs> Dude, that's, uh, that's crazy. I've, in, in all the time I've known you, I, I hadn't heard that part of the story, which is, which is kind of cool to, to get to know here. <laughs> and I think it, you know, there are some, there are some things that happened back in the day that are integral parts of how the story came to, to be about. And obviously this is, you know, this is the tragedy to triumph podcast where we're looking to have conversations with leaders and, you know, blue collar type industries that have faced some sort of adversity or obstacles, some really deep and dark challenges that they had to overcome. So tell us some about that, man. Tell us a little bit about what, uh, uh, what some of those challenges were coming up that ultimately led you to the path that you're on. Okay. So um, definitely the first the first and probably largest obstacle was um, sexual and physical abuse as a very small child. Um, more or less ages, maybe three to uh, like, like eight, something like that. Um, and the, it wasn't through my parents or direct family, but basically, so I mentioned how I was raised in a Christian um, family. So we went to a church every Sunday. We went to this church. It was a super tiny church. I'm, it's pretty, I look back on it. And I'm like, man, I feel like this particular church was a bad idea just from looking at it, like kind of thing. Like um, looking church. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but anyhow, so inside that church were, you know, a congregation and um, my parents, I think, looking back on it, they they sort of made this assumption that because they were in a, this this you know close, very small church group, that um, these are all like good Christian people, you know, and and they're they're all nice and trustworthy. Well, Seems reasonable to assume. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I got to uh, my my mom needed to go back to work, so she was a nurse. 
And so it was time to find babysitters, right? Well, when I was really small. So they they asked around in the congregation, found a family, um, and then that family became my first set of babysitters. Um, within that family uh, was a daughter, an older daughter. So she was in her, uh, uh, like she was around 30 or so when um, she was watching my sister and I. And that particular woman, um, she had something going on with boys. Um, and so she would single out the boys um, and separate them from the girls. And you never knew which, you know, out of, out of a group of boys that were there, it wasn't all of them all at once. It was just almost like, I guess, randomly uh, singled out. Um, and so she'd separate the boys and the girls, and then um, she'd handpick some boy. And then, um, you know, some of the experiences I remember, are, you know, she, she uh, would take me into a room, um, ask me to strip down naked. Obviously, as a little boy, you're confused and you're crying, but you're also scared of the adult, you know. And yeah, of course. Um, and so I would, she would put me inside of a, a dog crate, basically, and she would take um, uh, broken clothes hangers and like poke me and hit me um, like through the cage. Sometimes she would heat it up um, so it also burned. Um, you know, it's kind of torturous, tormenting kind of stuff like that. And, you know, the girls, they never saw this stuff, but, you know, everyone who was on the other side of the door, whoever was being victimized at the time, um, you, you know, you could hear it. Like, it's, you know, well, kids I'm are sure. crying. Yeah. And so that's traumatizing to everyone else. Of course. Um, you know, so, so that went on for, uh, you know, like, about a year and a half or so and it wasn't you know this wasn't I mean the woman was smart you know it's not like every day she did this to somebody you know it would have never lasted but it um it eventually got out that like uh you know like I would tell my parents eventually that I just didn't want to go you know and I would scream and cry and kick um but you know they thought I was just being a little kid being bratty and you know, not wanting to separate maybe from my parents. Sure. Um, but eventually other boys started to tell their parents too. And the parents started talking to each other and then realizing, oh crap, like there seems like something really is happening here. Yeah. Um, and so there was, you know, essentially the most of the parents to my knowledge about a year and a half, two years into this sort of acted. Um, unfortunately, they did... <laughs> You know, the sad, really one of the saddest parts of the story, in my opinion, is that no one ever really did see consequences. Um, and it's weird because I've asked about it before, and it largely was because this family that was doing the victimizing was part of this close Christian, um, you know, uh, congregation. And so the shame and embarrassment and uh, you know, the stigma that would come from kind of lashing out against that congregation, essentially, um, was enough for a lot of these parents, mine included, I think, to just decide, you know what, like we rescued our kids, 
and we're just going to go somewhere else and we're just pretending this never happened. Wow. Um, so nothing ever came of that instance. Um, but um, sadly, my parents from the same congregation found a second set of babysitters right after. And they also victimized myself. Um, and, uh, and, you know, my sister as well in that case. And I'll leave her story out, like, just in case she cares. Um, but uh, mine, mine was about a, another woman. It was another one. Well, there, it was a boy and a girl. It was a, it was a brother and a sister. And this time they were in their upper teens. So one was uh, one was 17. The other one was 19. And, and how old were you at this time? Uh, this was this would have been I would have been around like like something around fifth grade, whatever age that is. OK, um, so fourth or fifth grade, maybe um, third, fourth, fifth. I mean, I was there for a good. Uh, I'd say another like three, four years, maybe. And this family it definitely didn't start right away like it was a while where i did feel safe there um but the the old the brother and the sister so the sister was the oldest the brother would basically just get into basic um molestation kind of behaviors you know he'd try and secretly take boys or girls off somewhere where you know his mom couldn't see what was occurring like there's a tree house for example out in the out in the yard okay and he would get us you know invite us to come up there with candy or you know whatever and then you know you know it starts simple like you know hey like you know like why don't you like pull your pants down a little bit so i can see what you look like you know kind of stuff yeah um the the sister was in my opinion like much more in some ways like more messed up because the sister would ask uh me to do sexual things to her mm. when the you know so it wasn't just like you know touching inappropriately you know it was, it was me doing things like performing oral sex on her and that kind of stuff and so um that was a much harder that time you know it's weird like I, I think because i was already you know victimized it and i and my parents found a second family eventually right to do it again i think i was pretty numb by then you know like that it felt hopeless i felt kind of trapped um what i guess i guess as a you know as a kid who doesn't know any better you're like well i guess i guess this is what it's like growing yeah. up uh, exactly yeah terrible to 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 say but like if you're you went through something like that i mean it, it, i feel like that would be a normal kind of line of thinking mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um yeah so like eventually we got out of there um that this time my parents uh definitely did act um and so there was you know law enforcement called and charges brought up and all that stuff so that that was you know looking back on it is good you know um did definitely... you did you have any like concept of that though when you were went back then like if you were in fourth or fifth grade were you were you like did you have any like what was what was your relationship to the fact that justice was brought down on these other people 
I mean, it, it actually didn't happen for years later. Um, yeah. So it was, it was years after we left that family. So, you know, like my parents, it's hard to remember the timeline, but you know, um, it was a rural, a rural, um, family and life. Right. So, um, I don't know how parents would feel about this now, but, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I was at home alone when I would come home from the bus, even in middle school. And I was perfectly fine. Like, I, you know, I didn't do anything crazy or my parents trusted me. So, you know, before even high school, I was no longer being babysat. I was self-sufficient, you know, making my own food and doing what's got to be done to get my homework done, you know. So um, it wasn't until high school that law enforcement was was called on the family and it actually again wasn't exactly because um you know the it wasn't because my parents and and other family members acted at that time it was because you know the years had passed and more victims came out and another family pressed charges against the son um and then I think what happened was my parents, you know, got word of it. And then they were like, well, you know what? Like, we should probably join in on this. Like, we should make sure that this person, you know, gets some kind of punishment. Um, and so it wasn't until years later that I even knew that happened. And I, I, I never, at the, at the age I was, I didn't have a sense of justice. Like, it... it it was just about being safe for me, yeah. you know, feeling safe. Right. So once yeah. I was out of the environment, as far as I was concerned, like, okay, that should, that's it's done. Like, yeah. 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 Right. Well, I, I can totally get that for sure. Man. Well, so, you know, looking, looking back, how, how, what was the harm? Like, you know, it's, again, sounds weird to say like, there's, this was obviously harmful. Right. But what, what was that like in you? Like, what, what did you lose? Or how do you feel like you were harmed by that situation back then? And, you know, I'm also curious, does it has that carried into the into the future? Like, does it still impactful for you? Um, The answer to this is actually kind of, I think it's very interesting. So there are pros and cons. And that's weird to say, but um, it's very common, you know, so what, what happens when people are scared and unsafe? You have fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. Those are usually the three big responses, right? And a form of freezing is dissociation, right? Being able to compartmentalize your experience from your reality. I definitely did that. That is a hundred percent how I reacted to all the, you know, these um, in the moment of uh, when I was being victimized in both family systems. So I didn't try and fight back. I didn't try and run. I just sort of turned off. Um, you froze in that yeah. analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I exactly. So you know, initially there'd be a lot of crying and screaming, but once I realized that wasn't working. And it's not even like I made a choice. I'm a kid. Like I'm just, I'm just reacting. Right. So 
kicking, screaming, crying isn't working to save me. Um, <laughs> in one case, I'm locked in a cage, um, so I can't run. So, okay, you just, you just go numb, you just turn off. And so, you know, so the consequence, the negative consequence is that I, I failed to develop um, like emotional intelligence. I failed to develop the skills to trust and create interpersonal relationships with people that were uh, empathetic and, and sincere. Um, everything in my life after that was um, putting on a show, you know, um, it was trying to, it was like basically walking on eggshells in life, like trying to make, not to disturb uh, other people, not to upset somebody, not to, you know, just, just try and make the environment as stable and safe as possible. Cause I don't want to have those things happen. Um, and so that is a, unfortunate consequence of having been through what I went through and it it significantly affected my ability to make friends um it it kept me um I I mean I didn't even I didn't even have a girlfriend until I was like 21 or something or 20 or you know um I was completely scared of talking to girls I was very distant from my parents you know I had a lot of anger um, and I definitely put a lot of blame, even though, you know, nowadays I, I don't think that's fair. Um, but it, I'm just being honest. That is what I did. Sure. And I um, be normal for, for a kid to do a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, now the irony is that while that compartmentalization strategy, that freeze response certainly negatively affected my ability to form close relationships it's also a strategy that I still have in my life that I can default to when I need to, um, that allows me to handle emotionally handle very, uh, high stress situations and, um, very chaotic environments. Um, you know, high anxiety, you know, um, stuff. All right. So, so I'm, and, you know, there's pros and cons to even choosing that strategy. But point is, like, I found that this strategy that served me well at one point to um, provide a sort of sense of security um, and that I later identified as a, um, a detriment in forming relationships actually does have value in my current life as a business owner, particularly, um, <laughs> particularly in the, the age of you know, coronavirus, um, you know, and so that's interesting to me, you know, it's like, it's not all bad. Um, it's, it's super interesting. So, I, I mean, are you, are you willing to like, uh, to expound on that a little bit about how you use those strategies in business and particularly right now? I mean, the, you know, the whole, sure. the whole environment that we're in right now, I mean, it, it, maybe it's useful for people to hear, Yeah, to hear this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so like um, I have a, a couple uh, good recent quick examples. So March, you know, 2020 was when um, the state, you know, uh, quarantined everything, right? Shut all the small businesses down for the most part. Well, when at that moment, uh, when that announcement happened, I was actually completely uh, on the other side of the country. I was in San Diego, California attending a uh, certification 
and that I was out there for a week. So the certification was three days and I was supposed to have three days after it of just me by myself, chilling, doing whatever the heck I wanted before I had to come back here, you know, to, to run my business. And the, when I, when I graduated the certification, I got a phone call literally like an hour later um, informing me like, uh, you should know, you know that um, the gym shut down. And I'm like, what, you know, like, um, and so I immediately went into like problem solving mode. So, so I did not panic. I did not freak out. Um, I definitely felt anxious, but that anxiety is not, I don't see it as a bad thing. Um, it's a very, it's a very common feeling that I experience, and it's just, it's almost like that fight or flight response. Like it alerts me to like, I got to act, I got to do something. Sure. And, um, and so I, I was able to um, sort of compartmentalize the anger and frustration that I had upon hearing this, this, uh, this news and, you know, all the way across the country coordinate, you know, large groups of, you know, people, my staff and my partners into, um, you know, an action plan that would, uh, transition the business into being sustainable, um, despite people not being able to enter it. Um, so within, you know, by the time I was home, you know, so I was home four days later, um, things were already running smoothly, you know? So, um, I thought that was, I thought that, I mean, I was proud of myself, you know, like that I, I could kind of keep my cool. And, uh, I was a little, I was, I was sad that I didn't get my three days to just chill <laughs> that part. I wish I had, but, um, yeah. And, and then, you know, something even more, more recent is, you know, the, um, you know, we're coming up in the winter time, right. At the end of 2020 and the governor is, you know, is hinting towards the possibility of, of um, shutting gyms down again, and maybe will, maybe won't. But um, because of the changes that have occurred uh, statewide with, you know, the rules and whatnot, and people's perception of risk and their anxieties around the corona infection, um, 2020 started off as uh, the best year that our our business has ever had, and had a you know uh, a, quite a large profit projection. Mm. Um, actually, the first, in fact, it would have been the first year that we were profitable. Um, you know, as of July, um, in the middle of all, all this stuff, it went the other way. You know, like so here we are. You know, what November 2020, still losing thousands of dollars a month. Um, and ironically, a landlord um, is attempting to raise uh, rent rates, even though it's technically not, um, it's, it's not actually allowed in the lease, um, wow. the way he's doing it. Uh, but that, you know, so, so I'm like, the business is sort of slowly dissolving from, you know, the money end potentially. And then you have you know, essentially your boss that you're reporting to who's trying to, you know, take more money from you, um, which is ironic because we didn't defer anything over quarantine. So we paid our rent every single month without any deferring. And so all these things are happening. And, you know, I could easily, 
you know, just walk around angry, you know, mad, anxious, worried, all those feelings, right? But of course, um, but I'm able to compartmentalize it and, you know, make sure each day I'm generally have a good outlook, you know, good attitude. I have some, you know, key action steps that um, I do that make me feel like we're, the business is moving in a more positive direction, uh, you know, and um, make sure when I'm working with people every day that those sorts of stresses that I'm having behind the scenes aren't directly impacting other people's lives. And so um, because it's a service-oriented career, it's very helpful for me to be able to separate those feelings because while I'm sure people would be very understanding, um, at a certain point, I also think a lot of people would be, um, you know, like enough's enough, Jason. Like we get it, your life's not easy, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I still have a job to do. They're still paying money and they expect a certain level of service. So, you know, it pays off to be able to compartmentalize these things um, when I need to. It's, uh, it's, it's immensely fascinating to me that you, you know, you went through what you went through and the, just the horror of that. I mean, I'm a father uh, and I've got, you know, I've got three kids and just the thought of something like you went through happening to one of my kids is like, I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, but the the fascinating part about this to me is that is you attribute a big part of who you are today and how you do what you do to the experience that you went through back then. And I, I just think it's, I think it's amazing. You know, I think that everybody, every one of us has some sort of uh, trauma at some level you know, some things that happen that, you know, uh, uh, are, are really negatively impactful in that way. And, and some people learn how to, to deal with it and turn it into a positive and, and some people don't. And my, and this is why we, this is why we're, we're doing this show and why I love these interviews so much, because I think it shows people, uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, my theory is that this doesn't happen in the, in a vacuum. Like somebody doesn't have something like this happen and then all by themselves figure it out. Right. right. So what was, what was the process of you getting help outside of yourself? And I know, I know there's a couple of pieces to this and I'd love to hear as much as you're willing to share about it because it, it you know, from what I know about your story, you tried to help yourself in oh, some way yeah. that, you know, didn't, didn't work out so well, maybe. And then, and then you actually got some support and, and ended up, you know, it ended up working and, and it's kind of what brought you to here to where you are here today. So are, what would you share about that? Yeah. So, uh, that period of, you know, post-college, once I was out of college, um, was when I started to dabble with drugs. And so, um, I, I have a big, you know, I'm 41. So really uh, age five to 25 was all martial arts and, um, you know, jujitsu, taekwondo, uh, MMA, um, would even do backyard brawls <laughs> up in, uh, Abing, uh, Aberdeen, Maryland, you know, uh, kind of redneck backyards for, for money. And, uh, I eventually got injured in, in a, um, in a fight. And then that, um, 
led to me getting prescription uh, painkillers, opiates. Mm -hmm. And when I took them, I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. (laughs) Um, And so I quickly started abusing opiates. And as I abused them more and more and the doctors kept giving me more and more. And when I would get tolerant of the ones they gave me, they would give me stronger drugs. And I was happy, right? Like, cool, got myself a drug dealer. Um, Eventually, uh, what happened was years went by of getting more and more drugs, prescriptions filled, that kind of stuff. And uh, then the the culture changed and the doctors stopped being willing to prescribe as much. Uh, And they started putting boundaries on, on that for me. So well, can, can, I, can I just ask you one one thing real quick? I don't mean to talk over you, but I, I just I want to ask um, when it when it started getting bad like that, and you were getting more and more drugs, were were you still in a ton of pain, or was there a point when when it when that was over and you just used it as an excuse? Yeah, it was just an excuse. I just liked I I didn't like my life. I didn't I I felt lonely. I felt angry. Um, the drug changed how I felt, right? It made me feel good, made me feel happy. Um, Even if all I was doing was getting high and playing video games, which was frankly, that was a a chunk of my life. Sure. Um, And so uh, it was definitely, you know, your your very traditional abuse scenario. And, um, but I'm a very, very intellectual guy. So, um, and I also have an ego. And the internet was around, you know, uh, you know, fresh at that point. And so I said, all right, well, let me go on the internet and see like, what's, what's up? Like, let's see if I can figure out some stuff. And um, so I found, um, I actually found drug sources. So I've actually uh, illegally bought drugs from the internet, but then eventually that wore out. And um, I decided, you know what, all these drugs come from the poppy plant. So I'm going to figure out if I can get a hold of uh, opium poppies. And back then it was, uh, it, was a, it, it was a gray area of the law where you could order um, dried poppy pots, you know, opium poppy pods that were used back then for floral arrangements. That's what they were largely marketed for. Um, and so I started buying them and, you know, when you, the opium poppy, the opium comes out of the pod, right? And so it's water soluble. So what I would do is grind up the poppy pods and dissolve the opium in water and then just basically strain off, um, you know, the, 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 the plant residue, you know, the cellulose. Um, tastes horrible. It's absolutely terrible taste. <laughs> um, but uh, man, like way more powerful than any of the drugs I'd ever been given. Um, and but you know, there's, there's instead of there being one particular chemical you're consuming, it's like 40, 50 chemicals you're you're consuming. So it's often argued that the uh, uh, so it's called poppy tea. You know, it's often argued that poppy tea is considered uh, stronger and and harder to come off of than heroin, because uh-huh. at least heroin is just one particular alkaloid of the opium poppy, um, instead of like 40 or 50 right? Different chemicals. So, um, 
basically thought I could outsmart my own addiction by like screwing around with the actual original plant. And then once years of that went by, um, I even got into like growing opium poppies, although I, I did bad at that. That didn't really come to anything, but I was, I mean, I'm, I was as obsessed with that drug as you can get in my sure. opinion. And, um, and I was never willing to go on the street to get stuff because I was so fearful of uh, consequences, but you know, the, the computer let me do a lot of things, right? And my privacy in my own home. <laughs> yeah. And then once I once years went by of abusing the poppy tea, um, the only it, it didn't I couldn't get high. It wasn't working in any real sense. The only thing using it at that point did was prevent withdrawals. So then I decide because I'm Mr. Smart Guy, right? That um, well maybe I can I can like figure out how to get off of this drug by myself by um, combining other drugs with it to basically like treat the withdrawal symptoms and slowly wean off of this, you know, poppy plant. Um, eventually I ended up having essentially a psychotic break um, because of a bunch of drug drug combinations um, and ended up being, um, ended up going to the uh, emergency room, the psychiatric ward of our local hospital, Howard County General. And they deemed me as suicidal. That's how I got in there. Um, I'm not sure I was to be fair, but I was definitely very glib uh, when the, you know, the physician was interviewing me and sort of condescending. So it probably was a good thing they stuck me in there. And, um, you know, I was down in that ward overnight and, uh, you know, two things happened. This was, you know, the experience of being in that ward definitely, um, was sort of the last straw for me. Um, I actually, about a year, maybe before that, I ended up getting the police called on me, um, here in Howard County and I ended up fighting two cops, uh, while wow. I was high. And, uh, and so that was like my first moment where I was like, Oh, like, damn, Jason, like, like, what are you doing? Like, what is, where's your life going? You know? Yeah. Um, and then the second, you know, final straw was ending up in the hospital, um, all alone and realizing, you know, I'm like looking around at all these people, uh, in the, in the psych ward. And I'm like, like, I don't belong here. Like, you just like, just fucking got to do different Jason. Um, so I exited the hospital and basically right, went right into uh, Colmac Clinic, which is a rehabilitation program here in Columbia. We also have a location in Silver Spring. And, um, you know, when I was in college, there was a radio program called Loveline. And it had Dr. Drew Pinsky on it and Adam Carolla as a uh, comic. And I would drive back to school after visiting my girlfriend at the time uh, every Sunday night, and I would listen to Love Line. And I loved that show. It was so entertaining, so informative. And Dr. Drew Pinsky would always, you know, he dealt with a lot of addicts. Um, and so the main message he would always say to these people on the radio is that you just go ask for help and you follow direction. That's it. Like keep your mouth shut and follow direction. And that stuck with me because I knew when I exited the hospital that what really got me into trouble was my arrogance you know that I thought I was special I thought I was smarter than everybody else and that I could handle all this stuff on my own 
Um, and all it had done was, you know, have my life spiral over something like five or six years um, into a place that I, I had no business being, you know? Um, yeah. And so when I went into Colmac clinic, I spent two years in their outpatient therapy program and I would go every single day. And um, that was, that was my MO, man. I just, I showed up, I shut my mouth, filed directions, did what they told me. Um, and I just kind of worked the system, you know, and, yeah. um, and then that led me to a new job. So I eventually got employed again. And that, that, uh, was a doctor. Um, he was, uh, his name is Dr. Stephen Horowitz. He was the, uh, chiropractor for the United States teams, uh, in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. So I got a really sweet opportunity to work alongside and with a person who really is a, a you know a giant among men in his field and way I mean he was 20 years you know ahead of everybody else in his in his industry and um you know we hit it off like and and I was so grateful that he trusted me he didn't know anything about my drug addiction in fact he still doesn't like when I, sh like when this comes out, he'll probably eventually hear it. And he's going to be like, Holy crap. Like, I didn't even know this part about Jason wow. because I was so ashamed. Like I didn't want to tell him. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was so grateful that this man would, um, you know, take me under his wing and, and, and very quickly was giving me responsibilities and exposing me to people and ideas. And um, it really did. It changed my life. Like it, it, it gave me a sense of purpose, which is what I realized. I just, I, that's what I really lacked the whole yeah. time. You know, it's like, I, I was, you know, spent the first half of my life pleasing everybody else. Then I went into limbo, not really having like, I'm, I was questioning why am I alive? Like there were periods where I was suicidal. Um, uh, and then once I found like my purpose, it, it, it changed like, my motivation, it changed the choices I was willing to make. Um, you know, it allowed me to start trusting people and building relationships. So um, yeah, he's a he's a huge, you know, mentor and, and you know, uh, kind of father figure of mine. Um, and then the, there's one other guy that made a very, very big impression for me. Um, his name's Douglas Kinney. He's an author and a uh, spiritual leader. Um, he actually was a systems engineer for Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab for something like 30 years. And he was a patient of mine at the chiropractic office. And he wrote a book called Frontiers of Knowledge. And for a few years before I met him, I was, I was reading all sorts of stuff in spirituality, fringe science stuff, psychology, uh, you know, it's just you know, I definitely was not religious, but I was, I was seeking something, some sort of direction. And, um, you know, I remember like at that time, I think I was really big into like psychic phenomenon, learning about that. Mm. And, um, you know, this guy, he was a patient. I didn't know much about him um, initially, right. Is he's sharing his story over many sessions and, and we gradually get to talking a bit about spirituality and my life and, you know, all that stuff. And he's like, you know, Jason, I got a book that I haven't published yet. And I need, I need an editor. 
uh, would you be willing to read my book, edit it, um, and let me know what you think? And it was the wildest thing, man. Like that book came at a time in my life that couldn't have been more perfect. It was, so the mind of this man, he was a systems engineer, right? And so what they're, for people who don't know what that is, that's a person who's able to, in the world of science largely, like take very um, seemingly disparate ideas and from different fields of science uh, typically, and then bring them together um, in a unified, um, you know, common theme. Um, and so his brain is just wired in a way where he can see these things that are seem completely separate and yet they're not, it just seems that way. Yeah. And so this book was that it was, it was like, it was like taking all the things that I had been researching related to spirituality and, and psychology and, and psychic phenomenon and ghosts and I mean, whatever, you know, like, and, and he brought it all together in this cohesive story um, that was essentially arguing that, that there is something more out there um, than just this life right now. Um, and, you know, I read that book and it was like, I got hit in the head with like with something, you know, like, it, um, and so after that, like, man, I was all in with like his ideas and his teachings and really tried to soak up as much as I could. And I still, uh, it, it's, it's like the foundation largely of what my spiritual beliefs are to this day. Dude, I think, I think that's amazing, man. When the, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's I think this is great. You know, like you, you, you never you all of that. The story that you told started as a result of going to this Christian church and to know that you, you know, you just stuck with, you know, you stuck with what you were up to. You you still are on a spiritual path. You know, all of all of that is is, you know, it's just. Brilliant that that happening has been a part of who you are and who you who you've turned out to be today too so i know i know i got to get you out of here uh and i also know that you're just one more word about um the work that you're doing around this i know you're still you're still doing work on yourself and and you know you've had therapy and and all of that and Mm -hmm. i want to highlight that for a second but uh, do you have 30 seconds to just give one takeaway to the listeners here about what the what the moral of the story is or what you would leave people with. Well, um, here, and while I'm saying this, I'll, I'll check and see if maybe I have more time than I think. Um, yeah, I do have a little more time if we need it. Um, yeah, we can, we can just have this be like the, just a, a wrap up and then, you know, you can get out of here and we can end on a positive note for folks. Yeah. Like really like, perspective man is like everything like that 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 idea of everything happens for a reason I don't necessarily um, know if that's true but that everything you go through in life that is worth um, you know that ends up being worth something valuable in your life it's earned through hard times you know like that that 
the moments, like the feelings of having something suck and, and be angry and frustrated, all those momentary experiences are just that, like feelings change. It's one of the main things I learned in my recovery is that however you feel right now, it will be different moments from now. Mm. Right? And that um, whatever difficult things people face, that if they can face those things with a curiosity of how, how can I learn from this thing? How can I grow from this thing? How, how can I use this to make myself better? Rather than allowing themselves to get caught up in the, um, the moment of the intense feelings and, and sort of believing the narrative in their head that that's just how it's got to be um, is, is a huge part of, I think, life. It's, it's that training your mind to adjust the narrative to what you want in your life is ultimately going to create the reality of the life that you want. A hundred percent. You know, I, I totally agree. I think that's, uh, that's brilliant. And again, you know, everybody, everybody's got a story. I know every one of our listeners has had something happen that, uh, you know, wants them to believe there's, you know, uh, you know, that it's, it's, it's not going to get any better than that. And, and I love what you said, right. It, that, that feeling is moment is, is, uh, is temporary and mm-hmm. in moments it's going to be different. So, uh, just remember that you're not alone. You're not weird. You're not abnormal. Uh, as a matter of fact, you're as normal as, as me and Jason here and everybody else, uh, please. Uh, my, our, our hope is that you listen to Jason's story and get some inspiration to go and get the, the help that you need so that you can become the person that you want to be. Uh, again, this is Jason Schreiber, the owner of Top Tier Fitness Columbia. And what actually, what other, what other businesses do you own? Where can, and where can people find you out there, Jason? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, toptiercolumbia.com is the gym business. And then if people really want to know me um, without any sort of filter, um, I have a social media accounts by uh, a brand called Noble Training Institute. So N-O-B-L-E Training Institute. And that's just me by myself, you know, with no partners. So I don't have to worry about what other people think about what I say and post. Um, so that's a good way to get to know me. And then there's a third one, too, that's uh, focused on youth athletics uh, called Evolving Athletics. And that's uh, the same website. So Evolving Athletics. Uh, dot com. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate your story, man. It's a it's a beautiful representation about how, you know, some horrible some horrible shit can happen out in in life, and and you can come out of the other side of it, you know, being sort of a, a multi entrepreneur and a successful human being. So thanks for being willing to share. Thanks for being willing to be vulnerable. Uh, this is Mick Carbo, your host for the Tragedy to Triumph podcast, and we look forward to y'all plugging in again next week. All right. Thanks for having me. It's our hope that this story makes a difference for another person. If it helps one person, we believe we've done our work. Consider telling a friend about this podcast. You might just make a difference for them too. Accomplishment Coaching, the world's finest coaches training program. I owe much of the man I am today to the work I've done and the relationships I've built in this community. For anybody out there who wants to start a career as a coach, 
or enhance their skills as a coach, look no further. Transform your life and set yourself up to win in your coaching business at the same time. Find out more at accomplishmentcoaching.com.